0: Hello and welcome to the Yahoo Finance Podcast. I'm Alexis Christophorus. Yahoo Finance was recently invited to the 2017 Concordia Annual Summit, and a few of our reporters got to sit down with some of the best minds in the business. The following is the audio of three full interviews. First up is our editor-in-chief, Andy Serwer, speaking with Ian Bremmer, the founder and president of the Eurasia Group. Next is Shauna Smith with Arkansas Representative French Hill, and last but not least is me with Michael Chertoff, Executive Chairman of the Chertoff Group and former Secretary of Homeland Security. Enjoy.
1: Joining me now is Ian Bremmer, President of the Eurasia Group. Ian, great to see you. Good to be back, Eddie. So let's play our favorite game, Around the World, with Ian Bremmer. We're going to go around the globe and talk about the problems, the issues, the opportunities as you see them. Sure. Ready? Yeah. Worst first. North Korea.
2: It's not the worst. Uh, It's much more stable. I mean, this is a problem we've been dealing with for decades. We're going to keep dealing with it. The idea uh, that uh, we won't tolerate a North Korea that can have the same capabilities hit the US that it's had to hit Japan and South Korea for a long time, I think is a good talking point, but it's not real. And I also think it's been one where Trump has, uh, if you look at the actual Trump administration, they've actually had a fair amount of progress. They've been able to get a 15-0 Security Council resolution on tougher sanctions, uh, and the, in part because the North Koreans themselves have acted so intransigently, but also in part because Nikki Haley and others around the Trump administration have been working to try to not just put it all on America's shoulders, but work with allies and antagonists. Um, it's hard for them to fix it, but that doesn't mean uh, that uh, it's going to be a disaster.
1: Interesting kind of contrarian take there. All right, relating to North Korea, of course, China.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, China is, I mean, so if you look at the first Xi Jinping, Trump meeting at Mar-a-Lago, by far his most successful meeting in foreign policy. It was very well structured and scripted in the same way that his UN General Assembly speech is fine or speech in Warsaw is fine because other people are telling him what to do. He reads it, okay. But you know, as we're now getting into the brass tacks of the relationship, um, it's getting more challenging for Trump to get what he wants. He said, well, the Chinese have to stop ripping us off. The Chinese have to have fair trade practices. Actually, China's getting more powerful by the day, particularly economically, and and the environment for Western multinationals to invest and have a long perspective in China, for some of the most important American companies that we have, it's actually getting much more challenging.
1: Right, Chinese money trumps U.S. muscle, I think you wrote.
2: Chinese money is increasingly trumping U.S. muscle, particularly, not just for American multinationals, but also, you know, if you go and you talk to heads of state or foreign ministers in countries all over the world and you ask, From your perspective, who's the more important power? The U.S. or China? A lot of countries you wouldn't expect are now saying China. And it's because the Chinese are writing big checks and because their economy is integrated from the top down by the state. Where, you know, if ExxonMobil or Facebook comes to invest, it's not your relationship with Washington, D.C. that's doing that. It's hard for the Americans to deal with that. And I think that this is one that Trump is, even without Bannon, who was like the big, strong China hawk, even without him, Trump, Jared, Wilbur Ross, Peter Navarro, all of these figures in the constellation of the Trump administration really do feel like the Americans need to play harder ball with the most important uh, of of our uh, relationships in the world.
1: All right, next, Ian Bremmer on Russia.
2: Yeah, uh, (laughs) well, fortunately, Putin's not in uh, New York for the United Nations this week, so we're not gonna see either a public or even a private uh, Trump-Putin meeting. Um, You know, Trump clearly wanted to have a reset with Russia. It's the one country he doesn't ever say anything bad about, the one leader he never says anything bad about. So it does make you feel like this isn't just about liking the strong man, but that there is something that we don't know about that will come out with the Mueller investigations. But, you know, Putin clearly felt like Trump was going to be a more positive outcome for the Russians, and it's very clear that Trump can't deliver can't deliver because of his own administration, can't deliver because of the media, can't deliver because of Congress, which just voted overwhelmingly to toughen sanctions against the Russians. And so the question for me, given that Putin has the ability to really act and is much more willing to accept risks than a lot of other leaders around the world, certainly more than the Chinese, we know that the Russians have a lot of intel on the RNC, on the Republicans, and on Trump just the way they did on the Democrats, when are they gonna start spilling it? When are they gonna start doing things that are gonna fundamentally embarrass Trump individually, and how will Trump respond? And so, unlike North Korea, where I think people are overestimating the risk, on Russia, I think there is a real story here, that at some point, we're on a, a trajectory that's not really sustainable. Another po- one other thing is let's keep in mind that China is a country that's rising. Russia's a country that's fundamentally declining, and as a consequence, their, leader- their leadership is insecure about that. So their willingness to take risks while they're still in a comparatively strong position is much higher.
1: Interesting. And of course related to Russia, continuing around the globe, is Europe. Is the European Union going to disintegrate and what is the American relationship like now?
2: We're about to experience by far the most boring election of a major developed economy in the world. In Germany, uh, Merkel's going to win big. Uh, but there are going to be a lot of parties that are going to get over the 5% hurdle that could potentially be in a coalition with it. So if you ask me, like, what's the German coalition going to look like, we, we really have no idea. Merkel doesn't know. Nobody knows. But it's going to be very stable and consistent, maybe a little more pro-business, uh, but but compared to what we've seen from Germany over the past decade. and. That in, in a Europe where the big question is Brexit, oh my God, populism, oh my God, refugees, terrorism, all of these stories that make it feel like Europe isn't fit for purpose, the fact that by far the most important economy in Europe is going to continue to be led by by far the most strong leader and recognizable leader in Europe is a positive thing and so I, I, I do very much worry about how attractive the UK is from an investment perspective. I do very much worry about whether or not the UK is going to be able to orchestrate a Brexit that works and over what period of time. But the the actual Eurozone in the European Union itself feels a little bit more stable, they bought themselves a little more time because of economic growth, which is now actually happening across Europe, even if it's modest and because of Merck.
1: And so, quick assessment of Donald Trump and the rest of the world, vis-a-vis the rest of the world.
2: When Trump gets insecure, uh, he focuses on his base. And when you talk about the rest of the world, there is no base. Even though America has strong alliances with countries like Japan and Saudi Arabia and Israel, and of course the Europeans, the fact is these leaders don't like him. They don't trust him. America first is something that was not meant to appeal to any of them, not a single additional leader in the world. And so when Trump talks to them, mano a mano, um, they come away with a pretty bad taste in their mouths and they come away thinking I'm not sure how much I want to commit to this country, the United States, the Trump administration, I'm not sure I can really believe in that." And that was was an issue that was already coming post 9-11, it was already coming under Obama, it's gotten a lot worse now. So foreign policy is clearly the vulnerability, it's the Achilles heel for Trump. Uh, around the world, and in most cases U.S. influence has been diminishing, not increasing. I do also think, though, that Trump understands that national security is something he doesn't get. I mean, when Trump said when he was running, NATO's obsolete, they better pay more, we're going to pull out, and then he becomes president, and he actually says, you know what, I said tr- NATO was obsolete, it's because I do real estate, and no one ever talked to me about NATO, I didn't know anything about NATO. Trump would never make an admission like that about health care. He'd never make an admission like that about tax policy. But on a big national security issue, he will because he does intrinsically get that he's kind of clueless and it's kind of dangerous. And that's why he's got all these generals around him. Likes generals, they act the part, they look the part. Handsome, strong men, broad-shouldered. And he tells them, you guys do it. And I do think, but that means that some of the more breathless headlines about, you know, sort of Syria or Iran or North Korea or whatnot are things that we don't have to worry quite as much about. At least as, as we still have major adults in the room, okay. particularly Secretary of Defense Mattis, who is not only an adult, but in my view, doing an outstanding job for his country.
1: All right. Ian Bremer, president of the Eurasia Group. Thanks very much for your time.
2: Good to see you, Andy.
3: We're here at the Concordia Summit in New York, and I'm joined now by Congressman French Hill. Congressman, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So I want to first talk about the latest with North Korea. We have right. President Trump and other world leaders gathering just a few blocks away for the annual U.N. meeting. What do you think needs to be done in the face of the growing threats from North Korea?
4: Well, first, I appreciate Ambassador Haley's solid work getting two 15-0 VOTES IN THE UN SECURITY COUNCIL FOR MORE SANCTIONS BECAUSE THAT'S THE KEY THAT PRESIDENT TRUMP HAS TO HAVE IS KEEP THE WORLD UNITED AGAINST NORTH KOREA'S uh, AMBITIONS FOR A FUNCTIONING NUCLEAR WEAPON. WE'VE TRIED THIS FOR 24 YEARS TO STOP THIS FROM happening. THIS IS OUR FOURTH PRESIDENCY WORKING ON THIS CHALLENGE. I THINK ONLY NOW ARE WE PUTTING THE SANCTIONS IN PLACE THAT WE SHOULD HAVE DONE IN EITHER THE CLINTON, BUSH OR OBAMA PRESIDENCY. So. We need to keep this sanction pressure up bilaterally with the United States and multilateral through the United Nations.
3: And you talk about the sanctions and the importance of uh, having the sanctions, but sometimes they haven't always been effective right. in the past. Do you think that the latest round of sanctions will yield a different result?
4: I do. I do. When you look at uh, President Bush's speech back in 2002, the axis of evil, Iraq, Iran, North Korea. Uh, The Bush administration turned its attention to Iran and Iraq, and we really did not focus, in my view, in the uh, Bush and Obama presidencies on North Korea like we should. And so I would say only now are we seeing the kind of sanctions and the kind of enforcement, which is your point, Mm -hmm. that will yield results, which is pressure on North Korea. The secret, of course, is Russia and China's cooperation.
3: And speaking of going off what you just said with China, we can't talk about North Korea without mentioning China. Do you think China needs to do more to rein in its neighbors?
4: Well, they should do more. And they are cooperating with this administration and in the United Nations. But you have to understand their point of view is they don't want a completely dysfunctional failed state on their border. They want to work this out. I think that's why they've been cautious about uh, particularly energy sanctions and energy cutting off supplies into North Korea. But they have agreed to some, and that's more than they've ever done before. That's why I see this as different than in previous uh, administrations. President Trump seems to be willing to push China to get results this time.
3: And another uh, top priority for President Trump and his administration is tax reform. We've been hearing about this for months. Uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin was out recently saying that he thinks tax reform will get done before the end of the year. Do you think that's possible?
4: People are going to make a valiant effort. Mm -hmm. There's bipartisan interest in doing tax reform, competitiveness for American entrepreneurs and American multinational businesses and real interest in cutting taxes and making it easier for middle income families. There's consensus on that. The devil's in the details. So Treasury, the Senate and the House hopefully next week will present a memo to both both sides of Capitol Hill that will outline what are the priorities of the Trump administration and GOP tax writers on Capitol Hill. I just would say it would be nice to shoot for trying to get 60 votes in the Senate. But I think Chuck Schumer understands that we do have the ability to use budget reconciliation and only have 51 votes in the Senate. And that is a stick, a bit of a negotiating stick, that I think the Senate Republicans have.
3: Do you think we will get tax reform down to the target of 15 percent? Do you think we'll be able to get it that low?
4: I know that's where the president wants to be and that's the secret of pulling this together is to do something that's pro-growth, fair and simple for particularly small businesses and families, but we need to get the economic growth. He's shooting for that. Uh, We'll see what we can get when we look at the packaging as a whole.
3: I also want to get your thoughts on the latest round of the spending bill. The House passed a $1.2 trillion bill uh, last week. You talk about the importance of getting bipartisan support uh, for anything that really goes through either the House or the Senate. Do you think we will be able to get bipartisan support for the bill that's heading to the Senate?
4: I hope so. You know, the last time we passed all 12 spending bills in the House of Representatives, there wasn't an iPhone.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a long time ago. So
4: the muscle memory on Capitol Hill for passing appropriations bill not so good. Yeah. But we passed all 12 bills before September 30th, the end of the fiscal year. It was a great testament to our appropriations committee. It proves that it can be done. Now we need to get the Senate to do their part.
3: And I also want to talk to you. You are on the uh, House Financial Services Committee. We're approaching the 10 year anniversary from the uh, financial crisis. Right. One of the big concerns there was the size of the large banks. Now some of those large banks are bigger than ever before. Right. Is that concerning to you at all?
4: Well, over the past three decades, I think federal policy, principally at the Federal Reserve, has led to the bigger banks getting bigger and having actually more of a moral hazard for too big to fail. Why? Because every time there was a smaller institution that failed the federal government forced only the biggest banks to buy those institutions, and it was very much in evidence in the 08 crisis. So in the House, we've passed the Financial Choice Act, which will try to reduce that moral hazard and change how we resolve big financial institutions, big complex institutions, reduce the moral hazard, reduce the risk to the taxpayer, and put more market discipline uh, on those big companies. Because it is concerning when you have high concentration of your financial assets.
3: And what about the uh, regulations that are being imposed through Dodd-Frank on some of these big banks? Do you think some of those regulations need to be uh, peeled back a bit?
4: Well, here's what I know about Dodd-Frank. We're about seven years into implementation since it was passed. Congress in the House has had over 140 hearings on it, and we've put a lot of the changes small and large that we think we should make in this Financial Choice Act passed by the House. And in that instance, we leave the high cost, more complex regulatory system for the big Wall Street banks, but we try to bring some common sense to it and remove some of the redundancy. But that extra scrutiny that they get as the biggest multinational, most complex, uh, complex banks stays in place even under the House Republicans' plan.
3: And another uh, issue that's been making headlines on capitol hill recently is trump's stance on daca now it seems like he is showing some flexibility towards that uh, what do you think should be done
4: well for the dreamers i think there should be a legislated solution because i do believe what the uh, obama administration uh, did was not constitutional and i think the courts have, have demonstrated that uh, the key is How do you fix that for this uh, 800,000 to a million people here and not encourage more uh, child migration to the states, which created a a health and a family crisis in my view during the Obama years right on our border? And the first priority should be to secure our borders and secure border enforcement inside the country. And I know over the next few months, because of President Trump's uh, directive to the Congress, that will be an intense issue led by our House Judiciary uh, uh, Committee Chairman Bob Goodlatte.
3: And we are here at the Concordia Summit. Why is it important for you to be here? What are you focused on?
4: I'm focused on today on uh, global efforts to stop terror finance, stop uh, terror recruiting on the internet, and I'm very interested to participate in, uh, with my colleagues from around the world on skill workforce. One of the biggest challenges we have in our country is how do we get more people back in our labor market How do we increase skilled workforce? It said there's some 6 million jobs in the country that are going lacking because of a a skills gap. And I'm going to participate in a panel today that talks about strategies to reduce that gap and increase skilled workforce.
3: What do you think are some of those strategies that we could do in order to... Uh, skill our workers and get some of those people unemployed
4: yeah well number one for people who are coming out uh, on uh, parole out of prison make sure that they are ready to re-enter society with job skills and education i really believe in that on people who are going to be getting out i have a bill in congress called shift back to society act which helps do that and secondly i believe we should go back to a two-track system between those going to college in middle school and high school and those who are going to pursue work, apprenticeship, skill workforce after they graduate from high school. I think we've gotten away from that in our country and we need to go back to that strategy. Reward both financially in the pursuit of happiness and it's not a um, one solution to a uh, life of success. You can have a life of success with college and in my view without a four year degree.
3: Congressman bench Hill, thank you so much Thanks. for joining for us today. Me.
4: Appreciate thank it. You.
0: I'm Alexis Christophorus at the Concordia Summit here in New York City, and joining me now is Michael Chertoff. He is the former Homeland Security Secretary under George W. Bush, and it's so good to have you here with us. Good to be here. Now, in private life, you are CEO of the Chertoff Group, and among other things, you are a consultant to companies when it comes to cybersecurity, cybercrime. It seems like it's hitting the headlines every day with another company, the latest, of course, Equifax. They're learning the hard way after their massive data breach. What is your advice these corporations, and who should be held accountable? Should the CEO have stepped down from Equifax by
5: now? Well, First of all, my advice is this. You you cannot have an unrealistic set of expectations and believe you will never be penetrated because that's not true. What you need to do is build a series of layers of defense so that you have resiliency. Obviously, you want to keep malware out of the perimeter, but it's going to get in, either because it's going to get by your, your firewall or someone is going to make a mistake And that's why you want to also be able to manage what goes on inside your network. You want to segment critical parts of your information so that if one part is penetrated, not everything goes. You want to rely on on strong identity and access controls as to who can do what online. You want to have backups so you don't have a problem with ransomware that locks up all your data. So we try to take a holistic approach, much like the human body, the human body doesn't keep all bacteria or viruses out. It keeps some of them out, but it also has an immune system, and that's what we argue companies ought to be doing.
0: What about risk management? With whom does that lie? The company's board, the CEO?
5: Well, the risk management responsibility, just like with financial risk, ultimately lies with senior management and the board of directors. Now, I don't think we expect the board to be uh, technically competent to be involved in making tactical decisions about what kind of defenses to use, but they do need to hold the security officials accountable. They need to have an awareness of what the threats are. And most important, they need to make judgments about how much risk they're prepared to tolerate. The more you do online and the more you open, Uh, your network to other people coming in, the more risk you take, and that's really a governance decision. It is not a technical decision. And
0: we saw the chief security officer take early retirement at Equifax just today. We saw HBO recently try to negotiate with the hackers when they broke into their system and stole scripts from some uh, shows. Uh, You say you can't negotiate with these folks. You can't pay them off.
5: Well, it's funny, you know, originally, the original ransomware attacks did involve extortion and they were very clever. First of all, they didn't ask for a lot of money. They asked for a small amount. And then they did honor the deal. If, in fact, you paid the money, they did release your information or give you the the, um, key to decrypt it. But apparently with WannaCry, that did not happen. And so I think they've now moved into a model where you can't really trust that there's honor among thieves.
0: And so you're saying you just can't because you're just going to.
5: I think it's a mistake to pay because I think you're going to want to pay again and again and again. Mm -hmm. What you want to do is back up and have your backup be on a separate server so that it can't be compromised. I
0: think companies are learning that quickly now. I want to switch gears and talk about the ongoing refugee crisis. You wrote an op-ed for The Washington Post where you believe that President Trump should raise the ceiling on the number of refugees coming into this country. And you say it's, it's a matter of national security. How so?
5: Well, so let me separate out two things. Obviously, any refugee who applies for admission ought to be screened. You ought to investigate to make sure they're not uh, a risk to the country. That's a given. But we shouldn't have an arbitrary cap that's low, because what we do is we put our allies, who are hosting literally hundreds of thousands of refugees in theater, in a very difficult position. We're asking them to assume the burden of the refugees, and yet we're not willing to be partners with them in that. And if you don't wind up creating a safe space for refugees, then either you turn them back and they actually become victims, or worse yet, they get recruited by terrorists, or you simply create a burden that makes it impossible to get control over a country that may be in the middle of a civil war. So I think common sense strategy from a national security standpoint says we ought to be willing to take a reasonable amount, higher than 50,000, we want to vet them, but we don't want to put an arbitrary cap on them. And you also say this could put our military at risk. How so? Well, I remember when we were in in Iraq and I was secretary, there were many people who applied to be refugees because their family members had worked with U.S. forces as translators, as guides, doing support work. And we owed it to them to say, look, you got our back, we have your back. And people should understand that there's no better friend than the United States. And when people put themselves at risk in their own countries, To help americans against terrorists we have to be there for them if they need to flee for their lives and
0: finally your take on the growing tensions between the u.s and north korea big topic with the u.n in session this week you say that we have every right to go in and hack their nuclear weapon system
5: well i mean uh, it's not a question of rights i mean obviously we want to look at the whole menu of options i think realistically though we're at the point now that believing they're going to disarm is probably not realistic Uh, One thing I do think we could do, which has been suggested, is maybe establish some kind of diplomatic relationship like we had with Cuba, simply because right now they're opaque. We don't really know how they think. And getting people on the ground would at least give us some ability to calibrate better how they might respond to certain things that we do.
0: All right. Former Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff, thanks so much for being with us.
5: Good to be on. Thank you so much for listening
0: to these exclusive interviews on the Yahoo Finance podcast. Please find us online, Twitter, and Facebook, and tell us what you think. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.